to go. Okay. Welcome to Sports Mad Res's This Week in Review podcast, where we highlight the recent news in sports medicine research. Over the past two weeks, we've had three posts on sportsmedres.org. That's res.org. In the first post, we highlighted a study where the authors reported that performing an infraspinatus remplissage with bank heart repair leads to fewer post-operative redislocations while providing similar patient-reported outcomes compared to an isolated bank heart repair. In the second post, we reported on a study where the authors noted that patients who undergo biceps tenotomy are three times more likely than patients who undergo biceps tenodesis to develop a Popeye deformity while having similar patient-reported outcomes, range of motion, and strength. Finally, in the third post, we summarized a study where the authors reported that a person's pre-existing conditions, such as insufficient sleep or stress, may mimic symptoms associated with post-concussional syndrome. Hence, medical professionals need to consider an individualized approach to examining a patient's symptom reporting before and after a concussion. This week, Dr. Jane McNevitt interviewed the author of this third paper to provide a more in-depth discussion. Hello and uh, welcome to the Sport Medicine Research Blog. Today, I am excited to have and bring on Dr. Jacqueline Cassis. She is an assistant professor at The Ohio State University in the College of Medicine, Health and Rehab Sciences in the Chronic Brain Injury Program. She has worked closely with the NCAA DOD Grand Alliance Care Consortium and has published uh, three manuscripts, one of which we're going to be talking about today, as well as contributed to numerous works independently and with the NCAA Care Consortium team in regards to sport-related concussion, posture, virtual reality, and chronic brain injury. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thank you again for coming. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to talk about the uh, recent publication in sports in the Journal of Sports Medicine, Factors Associated with Symptom Reporting in U.S. Service Academy Cadets and NCAA Student-Athletes Without Concussions, so findings from the CARE Consortium. So just to start things off, what made you uh, investigate the rate of post-concussion syndrome cluster without presence of concussion in this cohort? Uh, yeah, so I think that it's interesting, despite all the progress we've made in concussion assessment and management over the last few decades, I guess, um, symptoms still are, symptoms in a clinical exam are still the diagnostic standard. Um, and so we were interested in assessing symptom reporting in otherwise healthy collegiate athletes who haven't sustained a recent concussion um, in an attempt to kind of understand what factors may influence symptom reporting at baseline. Um, so that, you know, if you have somebody who does come into the clinic, um, say several weeks to months following their, their concussion, um, maybe there are some things that affect their symptom reporting that are unrelated to the concussion itself. And so to kind of bring awareness to factors that may influence symptom reporting and also, you know, the need for assessing what symptoms are related to the concussion versus what symptoms are related to, you know, other aspects of everyday life um, that a lot of athletes, and in this case, service cadets are experiencing. 
Yeah, and I found it interesting. I never really looked into this, but um, for the ICD-10 symptom criteria for uh, PCS, the participants just had to report one symptom in three categories, three different categories, physical, cognitive, emotional, and insomnia. And when you think about baseline testing, I, I feel like clinically, I, I never really found it all that surprising that they would have a couple of symptoms, you know, reported at baseline. But when you put it in terms of, you know, the ICT-10 diagnosis for PCS symptom criteria, it does kind of muddy the waters in being able to uh, not only diagnose, but then manage and see their risk of um, PCS later. So in regards to uh, the amount of student athletes and cadets that you found met this criteria, were you surprised at all on the amount? I thought there was a pretty big chunk in my, in my opinion. Yeah, it was. So um, I think it was between about 11 and 28% was the range that we were looking at um, of, of collegiate athletes, student athletes, and uh, U.S. Service Academy cadets um, who reported a cluster of symptoms that would be consistent with the ICD-10 definition of PCS. And um, it, it is remarkably high. Um, mm -hmm. I guess it probably wasn't as surprising because it's pretty consistent with the existing literature. Um, so Grant Iverson, who's also a co-author on this paper, did a previous study uh, in high school athletes. And then Brett Naskin, who's now at UCSF, um, also when he was at University of Florida, did some work with the University of Florida athletes looking at similar, similar things. And the, the findings are remarkably consistent. You know, that 10 to 20% range would by by all means meet the criteria for uh, for PCS based on the ICD-10 code. Yeah, and I saw that even the symptom reporting, the frequency, it, uh, irregardless of what category they fell into, the symptom that came up the most frequently among all of them is the reporting of being run down. Yep, and yeah, and like you said in your intro, you know, taking into consideration um, the environment and the stress. And if you think about, you know, most of these student athletes, they were around the age of 19. So, um, you know, a pretty good chunk of this data is probably based in freshmen, you know, it is. Yep. So, you know, having that stress of, you know, new either cadet life. Um, and you even said in there about, um, they were in their training there. Uh, so you can, you can touch on that, but yeah, so they, new, new life, you know, going into NCAA sports, stress, um, academic life, depending on to the extent of how deep they are um, in the semester, or if this is preseason. But yeah, you can just like think about a 19 year olds compared, like, I feel run down, but I'm like, old, right? <laughs> I mean, how, these poor, like young NCAA athletes should not be reporting this, right? So um, I really found it interesting that you looked at things like, and I think the biggest fa uh, factor that uh, contributed to them reporting, um, not specifically being run down, but uh, reporting enough symptoms to fit the PCS criteria was lack of sleep. Yeah, so it was actually kind of interesting. Um, you're spot on. So I think, you know, depending on the population, like somewhere around 50 or 60 percent reported fatigue. Um, now, with that being said, it's one or more, right? So 
maybe everybody's just running on that chronic fatigue, right? Um, not surprising, but I mean, you bring up a good point. These were all first year student athletes or cadets. So you figure they're probably under a bit of stress, even just moving from home to the university or, or in you know the service academies, starting their first collegiate season, you know, they're probably, um, maybe it's the first time that they're regularly engaging in strength training and, mm-hmm. you know, multiple practices per day in several cases. I mean, this for, for the most part was preseason, but um, preseason is still, you know, they have quite a rigorous schedule. So um, I guess it's not entirely surprising that they would all be reporting fatigue. But with that being said, yeah, so sleep um, was one of the one of the strongest predictors. And actually, there appears to be a bit of a dose response relationship too with sleep, where depending on how little sleep they get. Um, now, sleep in this study was only defined as the night before the um, number of hours of sleep they had the night before baseline testing. So of course, I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done. And I'm not a sleep researcher, so I won't say any more than that. But uh, just better, you know, um, questionnaires in terms of sleep. But even beyond that dose response relationship we saw with sleep, the individuals who reported um, sleep disorders, which, you know, all of the um, pre-existing conditions were self-reported. Um, so there are certainly limitations with that, but they were supposed to be based on clinical diagnosis. Um, and so the individuals with sleep disorders had even higher, um, rates of symptom reporting. So there really seems to be, um, something there and, you know, maybe that's not surprising or a bad thing, right? I mean, obviously people going around being chronically tired is a bad thing, but, um, I guess I mean, in terms of like assessing symptoms, but what it does mean is that at baseline testing first to begin with, um, maybe if people come in and they're really tired and they haven't reported a good night's sleep the night before, we need to be re-baseline testing them because that might not be a valid baseline. But also, you know, post-injury, if people are having problems sleeping, um, you know, we need to assess whether the sleep disturbances are a result of the concussion um, or if they chronically have sleep problems, if they chronically have sleep problems, Maybe some of those symptoms aren't related to the concussion, but then again, maybe, you know, sleep problems make the concussion worse. So we kind of need to disentangle a lot of these things. Right. Um, uh, getting back to one of the points that you brought up, um, re-baselining, um, what are your thoughts on the, so the symptom instructions have since changed. So you guys implemented the uh, SCAT-3 where, the instructions say, how do you feel now? Whereas in the updated SCAT 5, it's rate how you typically feel. Do you think that change will also kind of help alleviate this? Or do you think you're not going to really see a big difference there? No, I do. I mean, we obviously need to test it experimentally, right? It's hard to say what's going to happen, but I think getting more of the, um, like trait, how you normally feel as opposed to state, how do you feel right at this instant? may address some of the problems that we're seeing. So if people normally get a good night of sleep, but the night before they just didn't for one reason or another, um, you know, maybe they would typically report very few symptoms. Um, the same thing, you know, if 
if they're in a stressful situation, they have an exam the next day or, you know, their first practice, their first game, and they're particularly, you know, nervous or anxious, um, but they don't normally feel nervous or anxious, getting those, uh, how do you normally feel or how do you typically feel versus how do you feel right now might provide a more stable baseline. Yeah. One other thing that just came out as kind of a, a surprising kind of pattern was the amount of, well, you brought up the sleep, actual sleep disorders, but that as well as the psychological disorders, and then even separately uh, evaluated were things like migraine and ADHD. Mm -hmm. So all of these, you would, th you would think that they should be ma managed by a doctor, po uh, possibly on medication. Obviously the uh, medication wasn't part of this, but what were your thoughts on, on that pattern? Yeah, I mean, the the number of pre-existing conditions, um, there were a lot of student athletes and U.S. Service Academy cadets with pre-existing conditions. I think that what it means for a concussion assessment is that we really need to be asking these things and getting a thorough medical history so that we can um, keep track of that for, for post-injury assessments. I can't really comment on like medication or anything like that. And again, it's all self-reported, but what it does mean is that there are a lot of individuals who clinicians will be treating with pre-existing conditions. And so taking into that, taking that into account when examining athletes or cadets following their concussion is, is very important. Yeah. Were there any other surprising or you know, kind of alarming results that you found with this study? Well, I wouldn't say alarming, um, but I do think there were some implications for when the uh, service academy cadets were baseline tested. Um, so a lot uh, at two of the service academies, they were tested during basic cadet training. Um, one of them was not, and, and the scores were substantially different. And if you look at the, we have another paper that'll be coming out in the future, looking at test retest reliability. Um, and so that was not surprisingly very low <laughs> um, because they were reporting very high scores at baseline. And so I think that it's not a bad thing to perhaps baseline them multiple times in the sense that if during basic cadet training, they're going to have very high symptoms from very rigorous physical activity and training. Um, not surprisingly, they are under probably a lot of stress, which they need to be prepared for in the future. And so kind of understanding their symptoms then, so if they do sustain a concussion during that, they have those baseline data available, um, but then also maybe when they get more into their typical routine, maybe checking in with them again then so that you kind of have an idea of what their baseline is depending on the situation as well. Yeah, I know that that is definitely something clinicians struggle with is, you know, just timing of the baseline uh, concussion protocol and then, you know, keeping that same environment, you know, um, doing a sideline evaluation or, you know, doing an eva a baseline testing at 6 a.m. And then, you know, post-concussion, they're coming in whenever is okay with them during treatment time. Oh, totally. It's not even just symptoms, right? I mean, the environment matters across all baseline assessments. 
Um, I know Tom Buckley has a paper where he tried best testing, like in a quiet environment versus on the sidelines at a football game and a basketball game. And like, unsurprisingly, that resulted in higher scores on the best test. So it is hard to get something that has a really stable baseline, regardless of the environment. And it it is good to acknowledge that and then also to try and figure out what to do about it, right? Well, as we're kind of coming down uh, to kind of drive this home, uh, would you be able to summarize a primary take home point or two for clinicians to translate your work into clinical practice? Yeah, um, so I think probably most importantly is that when you're evaluating someone with a concussion, it probably needs to be done on an individual basis, taking into account medical history, any type of pre-existing or comorbid conditions. And I guess also, in addition to asking about pre-existing conditions, asking about how symptoms typically are. So if you don't have a baseline for somebody, um, asking them what of the symptoms on the checklist are new since their concussion versus what are more typical of their daily life. And then probably also one of the outcomes of this is that it might be possible that somebody doesn't get back to completely zero after their concussion if they experience some symptoms before their concussion. And so uh, I know there's another paper from, from the CARE Consortium as well that looked at number of symptoms at the time somebody began a return to play progression and how that affected uh, their recovery timelines. And there's clearly some threshold above which if you begin activity too early, it will lengthen your recovery timeline. But in that zero to 10 range, they seem to be about the same. So if people have a low level of symptoms to begin with, they might not be at totally asymptomatic at the time that they begin physical activity following their injury. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insight and coming on to um, record this podcast with us. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. I definitely look forward to reading more of your upcoming work and uh, that paper uh, that um, Dr. Buckley is going to be publishing. All of this sounds so great. So again, thank you so much. Thanks. I appreciate it. Don't forget that we also share extra material on social media. And if you're an athletic trainer who's looking for evidence-based practice CEUs, then please check out our six online evidence-based practice courses available through the Human Kinetics website. We will have links to our summaries and the courses on our website and in our show notes. Remember, you can always follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We will be back next week with more sports medicine research. Until then... Have a fun one.